Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and thanks for joining us as we shine a spotlight on Stages. With over 230 episodes in the Stages archive, it's time to revisit conversations featured in previous seasons. Stages spotlight such episodes in case you missed them the first time round, or so you can simply savour a second listen. Either way, you'll be accessing precious oral histories from the people who were there, on and around our stages. Joan Carden was born in Melbourne in 1937, on the anniversary of the great composer Giuseppe Verdi's birth. After understudying June Bronhill as the Merry Widow in 1960, Joan Carden sought tuition in London, studying with her major musical influence. London-trained and based, West Australian-born, multilingual expatriate vocal coach Vida Harford. She made her stage debut with the Australian opera as Liu in Turandot and Marguerite in Faust. After much acclaim in Australia as Gilda in Rigoletto, she was invited to repeat the role at Covent Garden. Engagements ensued throughout the United Kingdom and the United States. Joan Carden has sung virtually all the Mozart heroines. Her performance of Violetta in Verdi's La Traviata has been noted for the moving interpretation. Her voice in Violetta's famous aria is on the soundtrack of the film Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. She sung more than 50 major roles from the 18th century through to contemporary works. It is a magnificent career. Joan Carden is engaging grace and charm. In this episode, she reflects warmly on a career that has not only brought audiences great joy, but also rewarded her in the ability to gift the art of song. I was delighted to learn that, like me, you are a great canine fan. Oh, dog man. Actually, I think I am a dog. Really? In a previous life? Uh, uh, Yes, I speak dog. (laughs) What's the language of dog? Look, I don't have to say anything. They look at me and they know me. And I can see, I've seen dogs go, oh, <laughs> and tear over to me. And I said, I smell right. Yeah. You're a dog whisperer. I am a dog whisperer. So why are dogs man's best friend? Uh, I don't know. I, I think there's an element of subservience. I don't know why. I mean, they are descended from wolves. Yeah. So they like that. Um, they like being part of a pack or a family. Well, that, that's it, isn't it? And a leader. You're quite right. That is the. I think that's probably the nub of it. Did you have dogs all your life? Did you have them no. as a girl? No. I my first dog. Show was a dachshund called Gussie, who was originally when we saw her called Gutsy. For obvious reasons. <laughs> Big um, appetite. Hmm? Big appetite. Yes, and she was four months old, and she we we were going up, driving up north, in England uh, for to visit some friends of Bill's in Newcastle, and um, pulled into Slime Lodge outside of Lancaster, and as we were talking to the proprietors, we heard nick 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 nick. And there were the two Daxies, Mum and Whiskey, the mother, and the little baby, you know. (gasps) And I started to cry. I just fell in love with that puppy. And I said, 
do you think we could possibly adopt her? And they had discussed it with their children, I don't know why, and their children said yes. Wow. So that ruined the week away because I couldn't wait to get back there. Yeah. And we brought her back and she was my little companion. She was my first baby. Yeah. And did you have Daxons all No, no. Um, I had to leave Gussie in England when we came to Australia because there was a... Um, what was it called? Uh, rabies scare All right. in England. Yep. He couldn't take any dogs out. Nearly killed me. And But I was found the most wonderful home. A week before, I was getting frantic and thinking, maybe I can smuggle her on, in a bag onto the plane. <laughs> I was desperate. And I took her out, took my baby, who was, Anna was um, 10 months, took her out to uh, where we used to live in Hertfordshire to see the cl- the baby clinic there. And the lady who ran it, her, one of her two dogs had died the previous week and the other one was pining and she took it. And we have we remained friends for that lady's life till she died last year at 99. Wow. That's impressive. And I used to, I used to when I would go to England, I would stay with her. So we made a wonderful friendship. All through... All through the, the dogs. passion for dogs. Yes. Yeah. And um, uh, she, her husband, who had been a, a, a Navy man in the Merchant Navy, he, uh, Stephen, he used to... He said, uh, just to make her feel better, I feed her tall dog stories. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that sweet? Very punny. Yes, yes. <laughs> so Joan Marilyn Carden, you were born in Melbourne, mm. uh, an only child. Yes. But my mother was pregnant when I was 18 months old and she lost that baby. Right. And so I never had my sibling. But yeah. I was meant to have one. Did you have cousins? Uh, yes, Amanda's, very age? close cousins. My my mother's younger sister, Doris, lived in the Dandenongs and we had a weekend house in Ferntree Gully and we used to go up there and they used to visit every weekend. So the, the routine was uh, we would go to the interval at the Adelphi where Dad ran the, the shop uh, that was attached to the building and we lived behind it and um, the the interval would be cleared up and the car would have been packed and we would set off to Ferntree Gully via the chip shop at the fish and chip shop at Box Hill and then I would have that and fall asleep and be carried in to the little um, timber house that we had on three quarters of an acre, which ended up years later to be a, would you believe, a nursing home. Uh, And every weekend and every Christmas and every school holiday, that's where I spent it. And it was very healthy. And I've I've actually, until my uh, heart problems, I've been a very healthy person. Because my girls always say, we don't remember you missing any performances through a cold, Mm mum. So, you know, I have been healthy, and I think it was that early healthy life, climbing trees with the other boys, you know, because there were only boys to play with. 
I don't think the heart condition even interrupted your performance career at times. Did I it? thought it was a jolly nuisance. It was a story. You couldn't wait to get back on stage after a particular heart episode. Well, I thought, I, yes, I, I was uh, back singing Lou 10 weeks after the heart attack. Well, I t- actually, yeah, 10 weeks after the heart attack. Had uh, the doctors approved that? or you saw... I didn't tell them. Right. <laughs> it's my business. <laughs> Were the uh, opera company management uh, a bit concerned? Oh, yeah, they were great. They were, I mean, Moffat was fantastic. And he he eased me back in by putting me in a role that I knew. But it was the weirdest experience imaginable because I'd, I actually had the... This was after the, the bypass and I'd had my sternum sawed open and this bone had swelled and so now when I turn my head uh, the sinews scrape over it which they didn't before so there was a hollow. So were you concerned that the operation might have affected your voice? Oh god yes. I couldn't wait when I came to I was starting to hum because I thought is it still there? Yeah. Oh, it was ter- I cannot tell you how terrifying it was. So 10 weeks later, are you, are you still in pain? Because you, your bones are still knitting together, aren't they? And, yes. And yes. perhaps and even what, some bruising. I, I, well, what happened was there was, it was a really fine line. And then it went keloid, which was upset me terribly. And I could not stand anything on it. Now you can hardly see it. Right. But as far as like uh, clothing or costume on on the scar, you couldn't. I well, I I had to I I had to cover the scar by trying to wear a um, a locket or something or or a necklace, but I couldn't stand it on on the actual wound. It 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 just it made me feel terrible. And you're very self-conscious of the sight of it as well, aren't you, I guess? Oh, very. Because as a performer, you're quite vulnerable. And and, and the the lovely man who made the costumes, John Papadopoulos, uh, he used to always rave on about my décolleté. And I said, well, it ain't there anymore, dear. You've got to cover it up. We can't have any low necks anymore. Right. Which meant all all my concert dresses couldn't be worn. And because I couldn't wear uh, even a uh, a locket or a chain to hide it, so but it was a major a major thing. And I remember looking in the mirror in the bathroom at the hospital and thinking, I'm just not the same person anymore. It was terrifying, and not only that, um, I was in in a, a private room. And my cousin rang quite early in the morning from Melbourne. I couldn't speak. Right. I, I was going, mm-pff, mm-pff, mm-pff. You and, I'd seen, and I'd seen my mother do that. She had a TIA in front of me and she was looking so mystified because she was speaking, but she couldn't. And the same thing. So describe for me that first night back on stage, you know, ten, oh, ten weeks later. It was actually a matinee. Right. And it was the most uncanny feeling because I didn't sound the same to myself. 
And it was like I was on my own shoulder watching myself perform. It was an out-of-body experience. Yeah. Terrifying. And it was Liu in Turandot. A great production. I loved it. Um, and I, what happened was Liu is laid on the backs of these men and they crawl off with me on their backs. Uh, and I just I absolutely burst into tears. Couldn't move because it had been such an effort. And that was four months after the surgery. Wow. Extraordinary. And it was, that was the most shocking year. I, I was absolutely stupid. I then, I think it was just a little bit later, about June, I made my debut as Tosca. That was my role debut, which I was very lucky to have John Copley really looking after me, and the, the VSO did too, they were wonderful. Um, and he said, no, you, you, you only do what you have to do. He said, I know you know it. And uh, uh, so that, that all worked out well, and was the wonderful John Wegner as, as the Baron Scalpier. And he was simply terrifying as Scalpier. And he used to, and he was very athletic, he used to stride across the stage and I used to think, I hope he remembers his acting. <laughs> and this isn't real. And he, used, he, was, he really manhandled me quite roughly, you know, and I was very delicate. Uh, but he, he got into the mood of it. It was a wonderful performer. Well, that's a powerful thing in opera too, isn't it? When, yeah. when the physicality can match the voice. When, yeah. when the uh, singer looks like the character. Oh, yes. Yeah. And, and he was scarlet. Oh, so was John Shaw to the life. And I, I, uh, I did quite a lot of performances with John Shaw. Uh, it, that that was uh, a wonderful experience. But then I very foolishly took on a big role debut as some um, Mede in French with reams of um, French dialogue. And it all went absolutely swimmingly up to the, um, the dress rehearsal and I had a most glowing report from the French coach, Marie Claire, saying, you know, that she'd been gobsmacked by my performance. And on the opening night, exhaustion hit me and I went blank. I'm standing in the wings and I thought, I can't remember a single word of that first speech. So I said to Kath Dad, who was the stage manager, can I see your score? Didn't have my score. And I said, have you got glasses? No. I couldn't read the, couldn't read the thing. So I, I went on and I thought, oh, it'll come to me. It'll, it, it'll come to me, won't it? But it didn't. But your body is still repairing itself, I it guess. It was. Yeah. And I had gone too far. Yeah. yeah. And, only, I, and only... Richard Bonning was conducting. Right. And he's got the, and all that's happening in the, in, in the accompaniment is diddle, diddle, diddle in the orchestra and he's looking at me with his eyes like saucers. And I'm going wide out at him as if to say, can't remember a thing. And there was just silence and diddle, diddle, diddle in the orchestra. I thought I'd die. It, not a word would come to me. So how'd and you get out of it? I just looked dramatic and as if I was supposed to be doing it 
Well, that's the thing, isn't it? If the audience don't know. Well, no. I guess some of them might know the score or whatever, but uh, if something does I go wrong... I didn't come out stage, of character for a second. Yeah, great, great. But nobody knew what was going on inside me, and I thought... Uh, and I said to Richard afterwards, I thought I was going to die. I don't know how he managed. I really don't. Anyway, because what happens after that is you redouble your efforts to be effective. (laughs) But that was the the biggest shock of my career, I can tell you. Well, thank goodness for all that country air and tree climbing in your your youth. (laughs) Yes, I thought you can't keep us goodies. You said your dad worked at the Astor. Was that a cinema? Uh, it was the Adelphia. Adelphia, beg your pardon. Yeah. It was a. It had been the Jubilee roller skating rink, and his uncle, who was a Melbourne City councillor, George Frederick Carden, he um, he bought it and converted it into a cinema, and it was Art Deco, very beautiful, gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous, and the ceiling is still the same. I went and saw it a few years ago, and uh, I, the, I saw the door was open, so I went in, and this man, who was obviously the manager, said, oh, can I help you? And I told him what my connection was, and he said, oh, I've got a whole file on you. And he took me into the, his office, and sure enough, he had a file on me and on my great-uncle, and the history of our connection with that, with that um, cinema. So it was the Adelphi Theatre, uh, and it's ne- then it became the San Remo Ballroom. Did you spend much time at the cinema? I was there from my pram. I was looked after by the, the, the ushers while mum and dad worked. So you saw a, a bit of film, I guess. I must have. Yes. And so and when the theatre was empty, I used to go up on the stage and there was a microphone on a stand, which was not working, but I stood in front of it. I didn't sing because I was terribly shy, but I used to tell stories. And the usher used to go and say to Dad, come and see Joan, she's telling stories in the auditorium that I made up. Because you're looking out into an auditorium Black, yeah, full, but full of empty. chairs, but empty. Yes. But there's something perhaps about seeing all of those films that's yes. through osmosis. I'm sure. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when I first, when I did my audition, when I was 22, I think, for um, The Merry Widow, I did that at the Tivoli Theatre. 
And I walked, as I walked across the stage to do, to sing, I thought, oh, I've come home. Mm. It was the most uncanny feeling. Mm. I felt as if I belonged there. Mm. So I was nervous, but not as much as I might have been. And that was the start of the love affair with the theatre. Mary Widow, and you were understudying Jim uh, uh, Bromhill. Yes, well, first of all, I was the chorus. Then I went, became a grisette. Uh, Clo-clo, fru-fru. Yeah, Clo-clo. It's the last one. And then she would sing, Emma. Oh, it was one of the grisettes of Paris greet you, and we're very proud, and we're very pleased to meet you. Lolo, dodo, shoo, fru, fru, clo, clo, margo. So we all have to start somewhere. You started in the chorus. Yes, and then I was promoted to a, um, a grisette, and then I became Joan, June's understudy. I guess you always had your eye, though, on the big prize. No. No? You no, were no. Content to be just, a chorus person? It was a progression that had nothing to do with ambition. Right. I just wanted to be better. That was my thing. I knew I had shortcomings and I wanted to work on them. Which is why I was offered a role by Garnet Carroll in the next thing, what was it? I think it was a pyjama game. And I said, no, no, I'm, I'm going overseas to learn singing from Vida Harford, which I did because Ray Myers, no, Ray, Raymond Nielsen, who had been the Camille, and he was very—he had his own costume for um, uh, in Carmen, or Don Don Jose, yeah, and he um, he was learning from Vida Harford, and he said she's a most wonderful musician. She hails from Perth, Western Australia, and what she doesn't know about music isn't worth knowing. So. I wrote to her and she said, yes, come and let me hear you. So I, I did. I got off the ship uh, we, with my two girlfriends. We got off at Southampton. We, we went to the um, Overseas Visitors Club in Earl's Court. And we shared a room, the three of us, with a fourth person. And then we found a, um, a nice little flat above a villa, a humble villa in um, North Ken, Labour Grove, and we, we lived there and I commuted from there to have lessons with Vida in Vida Harvard. First of all, she was in Regent's Park, right opposite uh, the, the park and the zoo, and that's where I met uh, Cliff Grant who is still my friend and lives 10 minutes away. Fabulous. And he did those two paintings. Gorgeous. Uh, the relationship with Vida was over several decades, wasn't it? She oh, yes. Became she was your, my mentatrice. Right. Definitely. Uh, she just taught me everything that was important. And although, see, when I went to her... I. I had always sounded as if I'd had singing lessons before I had any. And I first, my first teacher was, um, well, I had a piano teacher who used to teach me 
little things. She was Miss Power. Then I had this lovely lady, Mrs Molly Orton, who used to sing herself, and she was really kind to me, and she really understood my very, my very nervous nature. And um, uh, she really nurtured that. And then I went to the, what was it, Shift, which that was taught in uh, Allen's in, Col in Collins Street. That was hopeless. Uh, and really that was just almost playing by ear. Uh, and uh, then I started singing lessons with a wonderful um, Thea Phillips, who was a Wagnerian soprano. Wagnerian, English Wagnerian soprano. Huge woman, gorgeous. So a big voice too. Yes, yeah. and a beautiful, beautiful, mellifluous voice. Um, and she ended up singing the role of Praskovia in uh, Merry Widow, that Merry Widow I was in, which is a non-singing role, and she she acted the role, and it was a spoof, and it, re it, it so depressed her that she committed suicide. That she couldn't sing anymore, or...? No, because she was given a role that really was... Right. She didn't... It, it was a spoof role, yeah. and she had been a dignified person. Right. Um, and uh, and I remember um, the night before she committed suicide at a matinee, before a matinee, and um, she had said to, it was a group of people standing around the corridor, and she said, oh, Joan has always been my very good friend. She was saying goodbye. Wow. I didn't realise it. Nobody realises, do they? <sighs> Lovely woman. Yeah. And uh, next day, we're, um, Ray Nielsen said to me, now there's, there's going to be an announcement at the end of the show and I don't want you to be upset. So I'm, st I'm standing in, in the finale and I've got my arms up and we've just sung the thing and I thought, who's missing? And I looked up, it's Thea. And then they made the announcement that she, that the stage manager, Ivan, had gone over to see why she lived in a hotel opposite the theatre. And he went over to see why she hadn't turned up, and she was dead. She'd taken an overdose of pills. Very sad. Very sad. And so she uh, she was buried at uh, Kinsella's, I think it was called, in what's that square with Taylor Square. Taylor Square. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and um, yes, yeah, so. Uh, so we all attended that and everybody was just devastated because she was so well loved and respected, but she couldn't feel that. And she did have a drinking problem, so she was married to a man who worked for in the music department at uh, Allen's and he arranged, she lived in Anzac Road, Warrandyte, and he, that was because it was away from where there were any hotels or she could get a drink. Yeah, geographically removed. Yeah. yeah. So singing teachers can give us technique and yes. provide us with the skill to perform. Yes. I imagine they also provide a psychological support as well. Some do. Vida didn't. Right. Not once 
in the whole of my years with Vida Harford, did she ever say she was pleased with anything I did. Really? Not once. So not necessarily any encouragement or... I don't know whether she thought I might soft pedal if she told me that. Yeah. But I could have done with it. I needed that. Well, that all, was all one, performers That was that, a psychological that. shortcoming on her part that she didn't realise that... Well, as when I've done a, the little bit of teaching that I have, I make sure that I balance positives and negatives. Was Vida a parent? Yes. Oh, she says Very she tough parent. Yeah, right. of, and I'm friends with her son to this day, mm. uh, Hilary. He was named after the Hilary term at Cambridge. And um, he, he uh, played the clarinet and but he became an expert in Arabic. Right. And then he taught at a school, but he never was a professional performer. Right. Well, his father, of course, Eric Waugh, was the, um, head of mu- uh, the assistant head of music at the BBC, and he was also uh, a censor during the war, and Vida used to drive flipping ambulances in the war. And she was a little woman. Somewhere I've got a photo. I'll go and get it. That's Eric and Peter. Right. Outside the house of Seven Seven Ordnance Hill, St John's Wood. And she's got a Labrador too. Yeah. Yeah. And before that, she used to have a black spaniel uh, who used to sit underneath the piano and his toes used to go tick, 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 so she called him Ticker. <laughs> and, um, like a metronome. Yes, it was like a metronome. And, um, yeah, so it's that, uh, that little tiny house that she taught in the basement. So they're standing at the top of the steps. There's another steps down into the basement where the studio was. Right. And she used to teach John Mitchinson and... Maureen Guy and Cliff uh, and what was that woman's name? Isla Blair, who is the wife of Raymond Herrings. Right. And so she used to teach Raymond. She, well, she coached Raymond. Most people she coached, but she, me, she taught. Right. And uh, lots of Australian singers wanted to learn from Vida, having heard me that the difference that it made. Because uh, Will Reed had conducted The Merry Widow and we all became very good friends. And and Bill did me a lot of service. He, well, he did us all. He used to conduct little seminars and he'd bring along a recording of some symphony and we would sit around and discuss it. And we would just... The chorus, the chorus from the Mary Widow. Wow. So, I, you know, that was another fortunate thing. So, um, and it was through knowing Bill Reed that I met my husband because um, I went round to see him when he'd conducted Don Smith and Amy Stewart, no, uh, Betty Fretwell in a Verdi opera, I can't even remember which one it was, at Sadler's Wells. And I went round to see him afterwards and met my husband in the doorway. 
he was he was a he was a, he was a, a friend of Bill's, right? And um, uh, that's how I got to know him. So a few months later, we married. You don't know what's around the corner. You don't. <laughs> So, Joan, when did you realise that you may have this magnificent instrument? When well, it was a big learning process. I felt I was a honer and I was going... I didn't really know what I was going to do with it. I just wanted to do the best by it. Uh, and then I, I think it was when I was with Vida Harford that um, she... Actually, for the first two years, she wouldn't let me tell people who taught me. Really? No. Wow. And yet, I was very good. Yeah. But I had no confidence, thanks to not ha having that nurtured. Um, and uh, then I went into... She allowed me to audition for Our Man in Havana, which was composed by Malcolm Williamson. And Ray... Mar Ray... Um, uh, Nilsson was he played the part of our man and everybody in it all the casting they all looked very like the characters who played the roles in the film wow and ray herrings was the the chief of police uh, and colin davis's wife april cantelo she was uh, our man's daughter and of course, it's a wonderful story, as you know, that he he uh, he's a, he sells uh, vacuum cleaners, and he sends these plans of vacuum cleaners to the spy agency in England, and tells them that it's, it, it's some craft that's being built, and it's actually a vacuum Good cleaner. It's <laughs> <laughs> a wonderful story, and um, there was I was. I had a, a very humble role in that, 
I was the. It was actually supposed to be a baritone, but uh, Ray persuaded Malcolm to turn it into a soprano uh, part of, of the duet of the quartet. So uh, I was the watermelon seller in the street vendors quartet, and I sang el gordo, a quien le doy el gordo, a quien le doy el gordo. And that's it. That's all I can remember. But that was 1963. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not a bad memory. No. As a singing, you're, you're singing in a number of languages. Yes. Is that difficult? Are, are you learning? It becomes easier the more you have to do with it. I mean, at first... I remember when I first saw an opera, and I, it was the Magic Flute, and it was done by the Elizabethan Trust at uh, um, the Palais Theatre St Kilda. What a place. And um, I just thought, how do they remember all those words? Yeah. I was to find out. You just and sit and slog, and you do it over, and over and over again, and at that same time you do nothing else. You spend hours concentrating on that. On pronunciation, on the meaning everything, of the word. Everything, yes. Do you speak any of those languages? Not, not very well at all. Um, it, uh, I started, I feel that my uh, bugbear was the fact I started to know languages too late. But uh, I just, uh, I've sung in uh, French, German, Italian, and Russian. Have you spent any extended time in any of those countries? Yes, I've been, uh, well, Italy probably the most. I haven't been to Russia. Uh, When I was in Germany, I, um, it was very brief, and I actually, why did I go there? Uh... I actually went to see Simone Young conduct a performance and we went shopping the next day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, she was a wonderful conductor or is a wonderful conductor. Um, when you arrive at those uh, great opera houses around the world, are you given a translator to work with you? I mean, no, no. See, no. I didn't do much of that. Most of my, of my work has been in the English-speaking countries. Right. Yeah. And I really thoroughly enjoyed the Met tour. Oh, what, that was so wonderful. I mean, wonderful singers, Beverly Seals, uh, uh, and you know, everybody was at the top of their profession. And I, my cast was, I was in Don Giovanni, and the tenor was Stuart Burroughs. What a genius that man was. And he was the funniest. He actually nearly caused me to lose my voice from laughing. <laughs> he, and he would, he would speak in this beautiful Welsh accent, you know. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I laughed myself hoarse. Yeah. Because we, we travelled uh, in a, a, a plane, the whole company, over 200 people, in the plane, and and we we uh, we performed in seven cities on the eastern seaboard. And Monday, 
Saturday afternoons was Don Giovanni and Saturday night was Madame Butterfly. Monday was Thais with Beverly Sills. of as far as vocal care goes. Oh, it's shocking. I mean, you, you know, you're because there is nowhere to sing. Yeah, and look, you're in planes, you're... In, and people, when, uh, who was... Oh, yes, I went on a... Uh, when I went to Miami to judge the seventh worldwide Madame Butterfly competition, uh, there were um, 14 international judges, and Moffat had been asked to do it, but he didn't want to or couldn't. So he asked me, would I? Well, I had to give up three performances of Trovatore to do it. But it was so worthwhile because it was absolutely fascinating uh, uh, to see the standard. And one of the people who, one of the, the person who represented Australia was Cheryl Barker. Fantastic. Yeah, so that's when I first met Cheryl. Um, and we had about t- 10 days um, in the boiling heat in Miami, uh, where we did all the selection, 
and we we made the decision and decided that it would be a Russian girl called um, somebody Kudryavchenko, that's right. And she was lovely, big girl. Uh, so we went, we were then taken, uh, any judges who wanted to go were taken with them to perform, they performed, in, we, we went uh, to Barcelona via London, stayed the night in London and went to, to Barcelona. And we went to a rehearsal uh, at the Lys, is this the Lyceum? And um, that was fantastic. Uh, and then we went on to Italy where we visited, of course, because it was the Madame Butterfly competition, we visited the home of Puccini. And we arrived at his home in a little tin boat called the Chocho Sun, which had a little canopy over it, and the town back choir was sang as we arrived sang the humming chorus oh beautiful and there there was this big bronze statue of Puccini in the town square and then we went to his house and I touched the piano on which he composed Bohem that's pretty impressive and there was on the wall inside there was this big memorial one to him in stone and uh, and one to his sister uh, and just standing there drinking that in was the most wonderful experience and I've always been connected to his not to the man but to the music mm. and I thought that he wrote so wonderfully for the voice uh, whereas you know Verdi Verdi puts a lot of stress on you, for instance, in the role of um, Violetta. She starts, instead of starting low, when your voice is low at the start, you start high and then you get to the end and you've got to be careful that you haven't worn out the bottom of your voice. You've still got some oomph and some ring in the bottom of your voice. So it's really quite a journey from beginning to end to keep thinking now I mustn't settle down because I, I mustn't sing too high and I mustn't sing too low I've got to sing in the middle the tessitura in the middle so that by the time I get to the end I've got some uh, what do you call it patina on the voice you're a vocal athlete really aren't you well yes yeah. absolutely Olympian. you are a vocal athlete yes, yes. and it, as I was married to a physical athlete. Bill was not only a businessman, he was an Olympic athletics coach. Oh, great. So, and he, he had two people in the Melbourne Olympics. One won the steeplechase, the other got to the semi-final, and the one who got to the, it was Christopher Brasher won it, and the, um, uh, the runner-up, the, the um, semi-finalist was Eric Shirley. And he was a, still a great friend of Bill when we had our daughter. So he's my daughter's godfather. When you're performing, do you speak during the day? I know, no, I know that some singers no. have complete oh, vocal rest. They don't no, answer the phone. I, I'm, I'm, I was paranoid about that. And my mother say, oh, you've got the day off. Can we go shopping? 
I, I absolutely devoted the whole day to thinking. I lived that role all day. Uh, and it helped me deal with the nerves because I always was nervous. And staying hydrated? You were constantly sipping water? And... No, not no? consciously, no. Right. I'm a bit of a camel, as my mother was too. <laughs> I, which reminds me, I better have a drink of water. I have to, I have to, I should really wear something to remind me to drink water. Yes, we need to. Uh, they, they say we should have 10 glasses a day or something. I wouldn't have 10 glasses a week. <laughs> so, would you drink coffee then when you were singing? Oh, no. No, no, okay. Because mm-hmm. caffeine can affect uh, t- the voice. T- yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. No, um, but I, I used to, uh, I had such trouble with nerves that I started to smoke. And, and Richard Bonning came into the to the um, Dewey Green Room once after I'd sung the, the most trying role of my life, which was Constanza uh, in uh, Il Sarario. And he stood there absolutely shocked and said, smoking. And I said, listen, Richard, it's nerve-wracking. It's like burning a living walking on a tightrope. And I, in the end, I had to stop it because it, it was actually making me, bringing phlegm to my throat right. and making it much harder. Yeah, of course, of course. So you fix one thing and cause another. But what a wonderful analogy, walking on a tightrope. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what it felt like. Yeah. Am I correct in um, the knowledge that the first time you sang for a large audience was on Radio 3KZ? Yes. Was that a, a talent competition? Or yes, it lit? was 3KZ um, Swallows PA Parade. Oh. And Phil Gibbs was the announcer. Uh, was the announcer, yes. And, and uh, I was so damn nervous, I thought I was going to die. And Dad used to, Dad went to the chemist and got relaxer tabs for me. <laughs> <laughs> and I was still a bundle of nerves. I don't think it made any difference whatsoever. Uh, and um, he said to me, uh, and there's a schoolgirl from Carnegie is going to sing for us. Now, what are you going to sing, Joan? I thought, I have no idea. <laughs> I couldn't think. I went, again, I went blank. So he showed me the script and I, and I read it off. The By the Waters of Minnetonka. Mabel somebody. Was it Nelson? Mavis Nelson, who played... The uh, uh, organ and Bruce, somebody, played a guitar and they accompanied me. And it's, I listened to it and I thought, it is, it is such a boring song and I did, made nothing of it. <laughs> Moon dear, honey, yes. And then they made some nice wobblies behind it. Um, you, you, you've sung a few times during this conversation. Yeah. So you, do you still sing daily? Do you know what I do? I sing along with Andre Rieu. Oh, well, you're not the only one. I think he's the most wonderful entertainer. And I think he does so much to foster the, uh, the common man's enjoyment of oh, classical music. Absolutely. I admire him so much. I mean, the singing's not always absolutely fantastic, but it's very, very good. Yeah. It's, it's, it's pretty top-notch, really. 
And one of the the singers is um, the te- one of the three te- uh, tenors is Gary Bennett from Tasmania, who did Falstaff with me. Oh, right. Mm. Oh, right. You were principal soprano with Opera Australia for thirty two years. Yes, I think, and and particularly associated with the roles of um, Tosca and Madame Butterfly, mm. Puccini's. Did you have a favourite role? Yes, I did eventually, and it's with me till today. And I can remember it, though I do not speak Russian, I can remember it word for word. And I haven't sung it for 40 years. Really? Yevgeny Onegin. I fell in love with that character. And uh, I read, I had a couple of, actually I gave Simone Young, I lend her my four volume treatise on it that was written by Nabokov and had his translation and she still hasn't given it back to me and I gave I bought that was my copy and I bought a copy for Vida Harford too so I'm still waiting for Simone to give me back because that is my treasure and it is a colloquial translation as against a poetic one so it's 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 so verbatim, I suppose you'd say. Well, if Simone's listening, here's your reminder <laughs> to, to get yes. it back to Joan. Yes, because <laughs> it is my treasure, and um, I don't know what it was. Well, of course, Vida spoke Russian, and she. I've got the sheet music for the letter scene, and she has transliterated it for me, so I have it in three languages. <laughs> sung over 50 roles and and they extend from the 18th century um all the mozart heroines and and through to contemporary composers mm. stylistically i imagine they're all very different and require yes a different I, approach. I think you, each well i think every single piece of music is different has its own identity yeah and that's your role as the performer to investigate that and yes and do it as as was intended by the composer and it's such a joy it's a wonderful experience. It's like getting to know a person. You make a friend of the music. I love it. It speaks to me. What about different spaces that you performed in different size opera houses? Yes. You might be giving a, a, a concert. Yes. Um, well, you've got biggest... to calibrate, calibrate the voice, don't you, to those different Yes, you spaces. do. And well, you, well, the clue is to hear what the resonance is like and you adjust your performance to that. And, of course, it's not always the same depending where you stand. Uh, sometimes 
uh, one one part one part on the stage. Well, it's partic- that was particularly the case in Melbourne, which was absolutely shocking um, when we we did Don Carlos for the opening performance, and it, it, was, it was such a shock. And I thought, well, the audience is not really reacting to Kenny, who's out there socking it to him. And I thought, why aren't they thrilled? Well, they couldn't hear him properly. Right. And we had gone there to investigate it, with, and Mrs. Massey Burnside was up the back of the empty auditorium, no seats, nothing. It was just tiered concrete. And Richard Deval was talking to her. We could hear everything they were saying on the stage, and I called out to him and he couldn't hear me from the stage. So it was in the reverse. Wow. And in the wings, it was so reverberant, but they could be very quiet, huge wings which was lovely compared with the opera house. Um, but you just had to be so careful because the sound was better in the wings than on the stage. Oh, dear. And in the end, they put kind of symbols of metal, like shields, down the walls. Well, all that did was give it a metallic sound. And what they should have done was take out the carpet. And I actually wrote to the Premier and told him this said you need to take out the carpet and put some Victorian timber floor in. That would have solved it, but yep. it would have cost a, a lot of money. And they'd have had to close the theatre. Yeah. But it was a, a, a nightmare. And then backstage, practically speaking, the doors were not big enough to get the, the, the trolleys through that held our costumes. Uh-huh. And you couldn't get through if you wore a crinoline. Wow. Of course, all those considerations, yeah. And the worst thing was, if the person in the next room changed their mind, you could hear it. (laughs) Apart from uh, drying on stage, did you ever get up to any mischief? Were there moments moments of giggles on stage or anything? Absolutely never. Incredible focus. The relationship with the conductor is very important. Oh, very important. And I had a particularly... Uh, particular rapport with Stuart Challenger. I mean, when I looked down into the pit and he'd have his mouth hanging open and it was just hanging on my every sound and there was some extraordinary connection with him. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, I just loved him. Gone I'm, too soon. Oh, yes. And, of course, I sang in the my, my debut which was also uh susie johnson's debut as octavian uh in der rosenkavalier was oh, it was at a time when he was dying he was fading away in front of us and the, the stress was unbelievable because we all loved him and he'd be sitting there with his legs crossed and the, the jeans would be hanging off and it, it was so stressful but it also I don't know it seemed to heighten the atmosphere everybody was dead keen to do their very best and I was having uh, my journey as um the marshalling and we got to the I, I always had my idea of what I how I wanted to start 
the big trio. It's higher than that. And um, I day after day, hour after hour, I tried, and this one day, I got it. And I looked at him. And I just burst into tears, and he did too. I said, I got, I got it, I got it. <laughs> She's got it. And we all, he said, oh, I think we'll have to stop and have a cup of tea. Yeah. You've earned it. You've but earned those it. are the irreplaceable memories. Mm. And on the opening night, the poor thing, oh, God, we got to the end of the, 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 the first interval and his former, uh, well, I suppose she was really a wife to him, um, Marilyn Shaw, marvellous singer, um, he used to talk about being in bed with her and their cat. They had a Siamese cat. And it was a life I couldn't have expected from him, you know. Yeah, yeah. And um, so I I... I and he once said to me, was, I'd met this journalist, fatal journey that was, and he said, you really love him, don't you? And I said, well, yes, I do. And he just understood that. Yeah. And this was a conversation we had walking through the Opera House car park. Yeah. Great. They are wonderful friendships. I, there is something about music that really is a tremendous bond that people don't, you don't even have to talk about. Yeah. It's just so strong. Yeah. It's an intuition almost. Yeah. The power of music.
stage you had with Bob Gard and the watch duet (laughs) (laughs) yes oh god well it was Fiona McConaughey's debut as uh, Adele and the previous lady who sang it sang it completely differently and suddenly in in a a subsequent uh, scene where she's uh, she she is dressed up as the countess, the Hungarian countess, and um, he's he's playing along, uh, and I was thinking suddenly I got absolutely distracted, and I was thinking about Fiona wearing uh, differently the, the the her mistress's gown. And um, which she stole, and she was, uh, you know, th- there's a, a play on words about it. Anyway, Bob is twinkling his watch, and and he's twinkling his watch at me, and he's, uh, and I said, I'm supposed to say, what a wonderful watch, and and then he says, oh, would you like to know at that time it is, but instead, I shocked him to the core by saying, what a wonderful gown you are wearing. <laughs> Thinking of this dialogue yes. to do with the, the gown previously. And I thought, oh God almighty, shocked myself out of it. And he said, so he says, would you like to know what time, the poor man, he didn't know what to do with himself. Would you like to know what time it is? And I said, oh, I know what time it is. I just can't remember the words. <laughs> <laughs> And, and the orchestra, well, what's going on out there? And the next night we got to that same spot and um, I just paused dramatically before I said those lines, giving, I thought I'd make their hearts beat a little faster mm. and let them think I was going to do it again. And I said, what a wonderful watch. <laughs> and there was huge laughter from the pit. 
You've dipped your toes into musical theatre as well with The, the yeah. Mother Abyss in The Sound of Music. Yes. And Ida Strauss in Titanic. Yes. How different is music theatre performance? I mean, because you're doing eight shows a week. Well, maybe. it's performing. Yeah. But eight shows a week, yes. Very tough. And I hadn't done it enough to hold back, but it didn't actually matter because they were not arduous vocally. Right. And uh, Bob and I had this lovely duet in Titanic. Titanic. And it ended up being almost the highlight of the show. It was very emotional. Beautiful moment. It's it's the older couple, That's the, right. the Strausses yes. on... Um, the Strauss is on the Titanic as yes, it's, it's going, going down. down. Yeah, saying goodbye to each other. Yes. Yeah. And you know, uh, turns out his body was found and he's buried in New York. Mr. Strauss. Mr. Right. Strauss, but hers was not. Right. I, I feel very attached to those roles. Yeah. They were real people for me. Yeah. yeah. And uh, wonderful performers. God, it was a fantastic cast. But it was undersold. And it didn't do well, so it went off after about a month. And we were playing sometimes to 200 people. Sold us joint. But what a cast. And um, there was a big party at uh, the director's... Uh, no, it was the home of the chap who was playing the captain. God, they were wonderful. And it was uh, Mona Vale, I think it was. And he had a swimming pool, and I've got, I've got some shots of us all... And it was like belonging to a big, happy family. Great. Big cast. Yep. And the son of Michael Lewis. Alex. Alex. Oh, God, what a singer that boy is. Mm. And so his brother's different. Ben. Ben. Uh, And he was um, Phantom of the Opera. Love Never Dies. And he did that... um, Yes, I love Never Dies too. Uh, he's tall, uh, and um, his brother's not. <laughs> but his brother's got a fabulous voice. Yeah. Have you, do you? Are you familiar? Hmm. You must be chuffed that your voice is associated with one of the most iconic <laughs> moments in one of the most iconic Australian films. Absolutely, Priscilla Queen of the For Desert, for which I've received nothing. Really? Not a bean. My daughter came home from seeing the, the premiere, which was in aid of, I think, the Bobby Goldsmith Foundation. Just to remind the listener, this is when uh, the youngest drag queen, Felicia, is atop the bus. That's right. Oh, who was that played? That uh, Guy time? Pierce. Guy Pierce. As they're streaming through the desert. And he's got the, 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 uh, the, the silver case. Is, is, is streaming out behind yes. him. And, and he's, I'm singing, he's miming. He's miming to Afonso Louis from from Traviata, the first act, Big Shana. Sempre libera di Gio, folleggiare di gioia in gioia. And Vita came home and said, Guess what, Mum? You're in Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. I said, Oh, really? So I wrote to them and they said, Would I like a free ticket? I said, Well, you'll be very pleased to know I can actually afford an $8 ticket. Yeah. That is not the question. It's a moral one. But I think, quite honestly, they used it because they didn't have to pay royalties. And, of course, nobody knew it was going to be the big success it was. No, no, not at all. Are you acknowledged in the credits? Yes. But sometimes. 
I mean, I am acknowledged in, in the recording of the credits, but they don't always play the whole lot of them. Mm. But I, I think I'm down for posterity now. Yeah, right. <laughs> Do you, or did you read reviews of your performances? I used to until I encountered Australian reviews. And not good was, reviewers? or No, not good reviewers. And biased uh, and heartless. Uh, no connection with the artistic soul at all. So I had to stop reading them. Yeah. I, I, I once, I, after I had made my debut in Covent Garden, I came back and one of the reviewers, I think it was Felix Verda, wrote in Melbourne, uh, said if she, or that she, that she said something like, I was singing, what was I singing? It might have been Parmina. Um that I, gild, I gilded the lily, which he, because I'd sung Gilda, uh, and I, I said, you know, you sacrificed the truth for a play on words. Uh, and so his wife rang me and said, he would like to meet me and apologise. And I said, you can't undo what you've done. Yeah. I don't wish to speak to you. And uh, several times, uh, I I mean, I have had some wonderful reviews. Uh, And one loves that. And I thought, I can't have my season ruined by the memory of someone writing mostly unhelpful comments Mm. in the newspaper. I'm the judge of my performance. And I do my best. And one can do no more than that. Yeah, yeah. Are you superstitious in the theatre? Did you no. have an opening night ritual? Or? No, not at all. No. I'm very pragmatic. I've got me Irish background, you see. <laughs> <laughs> Start you in good stead. Yes, so it is. Have you thought of writing an autobiography? I started it. Yeah. And I've gone into enormous detail about my early life because... I don't think anybody really is familiar with that. So if anybody wants to take over and I don't finish it, they'll know some of it. But yep. that, that I've written the stuff that people might not know. Right. So I've got about 30 pages of that. Well, that's a good start. Yes. Have you got a name for it? No. No. <clears throat> because it doesn't really matter that. Right. You were known as the, the People's Diva. Yes, very nice. Yeah. I love that. You love that? Yes, I do. Well, opera was uh, originally written for the everyman, wasn't it? It was. It wasn't an elite art form. No, no. Well, I, I think the people it was written for, they were, they were probably not the lowest common denominator, the poorest. Yeah. Because uh, I think it was Gluck wrote the first one. And that was a bit of a while ago. Yes. Just a bit. Hmm. Joan, it has been absolutely wonderful chatting to you this, this past hour. So, so thank you for your, um, your generosity of, uh, of time and, and anecdotes. It's, it's my pleasure. It's I'm glad it, we've, we've been able I'm to I'm glad it. the memory didn't let me down. I think it's pretty impressive. And the voice is not bad either. Well, we're going to be 83 next week. Really? And, uh, on Verdi's birthday. Yes, you share a, a birthday with Verdi, which is... Yes, I mean, that's my greatest claim to fame. 
Ned his birthday. Yeah. I think there's some other things. There's that a show. rapport. You can claim as... I, uh, I feel... I, I mean, um, well, I think one of the great mysteries for me is how wonderfully uh, Tchaikovsky represented Yevgeny and Yegan in music. Uh, because he speaks of love and passion and he had a very complex personality and he had Najeshja von Meck who was his patron who was in love with him and they never met. The so magic of music. It, it, it's a most wonderful story and I'm sort of conscious of that as I sing It's the opening of the letter scene. Thanks, Jen. Great pleasure. What a privilege it was to have that access to the great Joan Carden. I'm sure, like me, you were spellbound by her recollections of a stellar career. I didn't know that hers was the voice we hear atop the bus in that iconic scene from Priscilla. Did you? My appreciation for this episode goes to Brian Castle's Onion and Desiree Records for suggesting the conversation with Joan and access to the great tracks of Joan in performance that you heard today. Like stages, Brian is determined to preserve our arts heritage and I alert you to his great Australian Voices series, available in a beautiful CD set, accompanied by a very informative pictorial booklet. The CD series celebrates a legion of great Australian singers like June Bronhill, Nance Grant, Robert Allman and Jennifer Eddy. I thoroughly recommend. You can find the CDs on eBay, yes that's right, or finding Brian Castle's Onion on Facebook and requesting the series from him.